Welcome to Femme Fatalities. I'm Mesa. And I'm Ia. This episode, we'll be discussing the Manhattan Well murder, the genius killer, and the murder of the so-called beautiful cigar girl. Trigger warning. Mentions of depression, suicide, and failed abortion. Viewer discretion is advised. Guglielma Sands, known as Elma to those close to her, was a 22-year-old woman who lived with her cousin, Catherine Ring. Elma was known to fall ill and confided in her cousin with feelings of depression and a longing for death. In July of 1799, a young carpenter named Levi Weeks moved into a boarding house run by the very same Catherine Ring and her husband, Elias. It quickly became apparent that he paid special attention to Elma. Throughout the duration of Levi's stay, he and Elma had grown sexual relations, noted by accounts from the other residents. Due to the scandalous nature of their relationship, as it occurred before marriage, Levi, though hesitantly, agreed to elope with Elma. Elma told Catherine the plan. On December 22, 1799, they were going to elope. Unfortunately, this would also be the last day of her life. December 22nd, 1799. Everyone had assumed Levi Weeks and Guillermo Sands had gone out that evening. A friend of Elma's saw her and another person on their way somewhere that same day. However, when she tried to talk to Elma, she was quickly called away by the man she was with, so the two did not have a chance to converse. The man she was with was never identified. Some people reported seeing two men and one woman together laughing and having a good time, while others reported hearing the young woman cry out, murder and Lord help me. On Christmas Eve of 1799, a woman's earmuffs were found outside the newly constructed Manhattan Well in Lisbonard Meadows. However, this was not investigated. About a week later, Elias Ring and a few others found Elma's body in the well while sounding it. Her body was badly beaten. It was unclear whether she died from drowning in the well or from the physical battery she had faced beforehand. Her body was put on public display, not only in the Ring's boarding house, as is the norm, but on the street in front of it. This fueled public outrage for what had happened to this innocent young woman, and within about a week, Levi Weeks was indicted for her murder. Levi's brother, Ezra Weeks, was wealthy enough that the two were able to hire the best attorneys in New York, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, and Henry Livingston. Ultimately, Weeks was acquitted within five minutes of jury deliberation. The defendants argued that the case was swayed too much by the public outcry. One of the prosecution's star witnesses, Richard David Croucher, may have been envious of Weeks and Sands' relationship as well. Additionally, there were conflicting witness reports. In the end, the ones accusing Weeks hadn't enough evidence to prove his guilt. The people were outraged. Weeks was ostracized by the community and pushed to leave New York. He fled to Mississippi, where he married, had four children, and became quite a successful architect. Though Levi faced no official consequences, and the fervor surrounding the case died out quickly, this case marked the beginning of a long history of femicides in the United States, and also marks our starting point in this series of femme fatalities.
John Edward Howard Ruloff. The Canadian-born American serial killer was known by many aliases. James Nelson, Yuri Lovio, Charles Augustus, George Williams, but most commonly, he was referred to as the genius killer. Ruloff worked as a doctor, lawyer, schoolmaster, photographer, inventor, carpet designer, phrenologist, and philologist, but he was also a con man and a murderer. His story is documented in the 1871 biography, The Man of Two Lives. Ruloff was born to Danish immigrant parents near St. John, New Brunswick. He was said to have the second largest brain ever recorded, it being 32.8% larger than the average adult male brain. By the time Ruloff was 20, he had already worked in a law firm and had served two years in prison for embezzlement. In 1842, he had moved to Dryden, New York, where he began work as a school teacher and studied botanical medicine with Dr. Henry W. Bull. A year later, Ruloff impulsively married Bull's 17-year-old cousin, Harriet Shutt, with no formal form of courtship, and opened defiance to Harriet's family, who deemed Ruloff as below their station. New York, where Harriet had their daughter, Priscilla Ruloff. Wanting to be further from Harriet's family, Ruloff pressured Harriet to move to Ohio, where he was planning to work as a lawyer or college professor. Harriet refused and threatened to go back to her family with their daughter, and on June 22, 1844, Ruloff accused her of having an affair with her cousin, Henry Bull, his co-worker, and hit her on the head with a pestle. She fell to the ground, dead. He then poisoned his two-month-old daughter, Priscilla, leaving no witnesses behind. Roloff decided to commit suicide, but failed in his attempt. The next day, Roloff borrowed a horse and wagon from his neighbors, the Andersons, and told them he was going to return a wooden chest to his uncle. Aside from the chest, the Andersons saw Roloff put a half-full sack or a pillowcase in the wagon and drive off to Cayuga Lake, the opposite direction of his uncle's house. Upon Roloff's return, he told Mrs. Anderson that he and his wife would be out of town for a few weeks and left his house in disorder. Rumors spread about Roloff's innocence and he returned a mistalk that he had killed his wife. When confronted by the Shutt family, he denied any and all murder claims and instead claimed his wife had abandoned him. He then claimed that he and Harriet had moved to Ohio together. Nobody believed these claims, as Harriet's clothes and personal items were found in the house, concluding that she had not left of her own accord. Ruloff fled, but was pursued by his brother-in-law, Ephraim Shutt, who caught him and had him stand trial in Ithaca, New York. Cayuga Lake was dredged to look for the bodies, but they were never found. As the grand jury couldn't indict him for a murder without a body, he was instead accused of kidnapping his wife. Ruloff's trial took place in 1846, and he served as his own attorney. His main point of defense was the lack of evidence against him, and that a crime had occurred in general. Regardless, he was found guilty and was sentenced to 10 years with hard labor in Auburn prison. While in prison, Ruloff taught himself philology, and formed a new theory on language evolution. 
he was even allowed to teach students in his cell, and planned to publish a book titled The Great Secret in Philology after his release. However, his plans were shot down when he was informed that Tompkins County would charge him for the murder of his wife the second he was released. Ruloff started a legal battle from jail. The district attorney eventually dropped the charge, only to replace it and charge Ruloff for the murder of his daughter, Priscilla Ruloff. In 1858, Ruloff was found guilty of the murder of Priscilla. Unfortunately, he had escaped custody before the verdict could reach him. He went on to kill three men, though none of these were premeditated, after which he was arrested and hung for his crimes. His execution took place on May 18, 1871. Sources say he gave a speech at the gallows and ended his last moment saying, hurry it up, I want to be in hell in time for dinner. Edward Roloff's crimes gave insight into how women were treated in this time period. Though Edward did receive legal consequences for the murder of his wife and daughter, he escaped custody before the news reached him. After his escape, he was not thought about by authorities, and there was no push for his recapture. It was only until he killed three men that he faced the consequences of his actions. Mary Cecilia Rogers was renowned for her beauty. So much so, she became known as the Beautiful Cigar Girl. Rogers was born in 1820 in Lyme, Connecticut, and worked at a tobacco store in New York City. Her beauty attracted customers of all caliber, and she often got extra tips by flirting with male customers. Her boss paid her generously because of the attention her beauty brought to the meager tobacco shop, including customers such as James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, and Fitz Green Halleck. Mary Rogers had a bit of a reputation. Along with being considered one of the most beautiful women in New York City, she was also considered a bit flighty. On October 5th, 1838, the New York Sun reported that a Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers was missing and that she had only left behind a suicide note. A coroner's evaluation reported that she had a fixed and unalterable determination to destroy herself. The next day, however, the New York Times reported that she had only gone to visit a friend in Brooklyn. This led to many people being suspicious of the New York Sun and of Mary herself. Three years later, Mary told her fiancé, Daniel Payne, that she would be going to visit her family. Three days later, on July 28, 1841, she was found a state away in Hoboken, New Jersey, floating dead in the Hudson River. Mary Rogers' murder, like those of many others, was sensationalized and gained national attention. Her death was used as inspiration for literary works, and several theories were spread due to the mysterious nature of her death. While Mary was gone, her fiancé felt a looming sense of dread and filed a missing persons report as soon as possible. Mary Rogers' ex-boyfriend, Arthur Cromelian, saw the report and began searching for her body. On July 28th in 1841, in Hoboken, New Jersey, 
he finally found the girl he had been looking for. For several weeks, the case had no breakthroughs, until a group of boys playing in Sybil's field came across a large bundle of bloody clothes. Their mother, Frederica Loss, an assistant to the well-known Madame Restel, reported these to the authorities. Loss stated that a young man and woman, likely Mary Rogers, came seeking lodging in the area the same night that Mary Rogers had gone missing. Later that night, Frederica reported hearing screaming in the forest. Despite months of requests from her fiancé, the police force of New York City carried on with one of the most popular narratives, that her death occurred because of gang violence. Her fiancé eventually killed himself by overdosing on laudanum, a mixture of opium and alcohol, while drinking in the very same location that Mary Rogers had allegedly died. His suicide note reads as follows. To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. His words suggested that he had some knowledge of what transpired. However, he was never investigated. In New York City, in this time period, abortion was not seen as something ungraceful and many abortionists openly advertised their services. One such abortionist was Madame Restel. Though Madame Restel was one of the most well-known abortionists on the East Coast, she may have very well been Mary Rogers' murderer. A popular theory, one that the police refused to investigate, was that Rogers had been dumped in the river after a failed abortion. This account was confirmed by Frederica Loss, Frederica, while in immense pain when giving her statement, said that Mary had actually came with a woman, not a man. This woman is assumed to be Madame Restel. Frederica stated that the abortion had failed and that she instructed her sons to dispose of the body by dumping it in the river. Frederica also made claims that she was being haunted by the ghosts of a young woman, likely a manifestation of her guilt regarding Mary Rogers. The police refused to investigate in this matter, and this case remains unsolved. After the death of Samuel Adams, one of the founding fathers, the public had lost interest in the tragedy of Mary Rogers. However, the way that the police and investigators handled this case displayed many incompetencies within the NYPD, and her story remains in literature. We hope you all enjoyed the first episode of Femme Fatalities. Join us next week to dive into more femicide cases. Signing off, Mesa and Ia.